This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear Love by William Maxwell. We meant to have her for our teacher forever. We intended to pass right up through the 6th, 7th, and 8th grades and on into high school taking her with us. The story was chosen by Tony Early, whose short stories have been appearing in the magazine since 1999. His latest novel, The Blue Star, was published in 2008, and his new collection of stories, Mr. Tall, will come out next year. Hi, Tony. Hi, Deborah. William Maxwell was a fiction writer and also the, the fiction editor of The New Yorker from 1936 to 1975. And his story, Love, was published in the magazine in 1983 when he was 75. I think you were in your, maybe in your early 20s then. Did you read it at that point? No, I didn't. I read it much later. 1983, that's the year I graduated from college. And so how did you come across the story? Well, I just came through Maxwell later and began sort of pawing through the archives and reading the stories. So what is it that attracts you most to Maxwell's work? I like Maxwell for many of the same reasons that I like Willa Cather, and that he's not afraid to write emotionally about emotions. I think that Hemingway sort of beat that out of American fiction, and to a large extent, we're still somewhat reticent about writing directly and overtly about emotion. We either will sort of bury it in between the lines the way Hemingway did, or we'll write about it ironically. You know, so if a critic says, this seems awfully emotional to me, the ironic writer can say, oh, I was only kidding. (laughs) But there's no way one could say that about a William Maxwell story or a Willa Cather story. I think he takes the great technical accomplishments of of Hemingway and adds a real a real heart to them. Sentimentality doesn't scare him. Well, sentiment doesn't scare him. I, I don't think one could make a, a case that this is sentimental, which, at least in writing workshops, the ones I teach anyway, is a... It's a dirty word, I know. It's a, it's a pejorative. Yeah. But yeah. I, I do believe in in writing with sentiment, and that sentiment isn't a bad thing. Mm-hmm. He's a very traditional writer and uses very much a, the American template of the short story, and I'm very attracted to that. Right. When you first suggested the story, you, you described it as, as the kind of old-school American well-made thing that, that you like. What is it that, that puts it in that category for you? Well, it's, it's sort of in the Hemingway model in that it says a number of, of things but doesn't say them explicitly. Mm-hmm. They're there on the page, but they don't jump out at you at first, and it's sort of a cumulative effect. And he'll give you something early in the story that you may not pick up on first until he gives you the second part of the equation, and then the first part lights up behind you. As we're going to hear, there's real concision to this story. It's very tight and and quite short. Do you think that there was something about Maxwell's career as an editor that affected the way he wrote? I never thought about that, but that certainly makes a lot of sense. I know from particularly my time as a newspaper reporter that nothing irritates an editor more than something that goes on and on when it shouldn't. <laughs> and if a fiction editor is publishing his own work, naturally part of the message is going to be, look, kids, this is how it's done. Well, we'll talk some more after the story. And now here's Tony Early, reading Love by William Maxwell. Miss Vera Brown, 
she wrote on the blackboard, letter by letter, in flawlessly oval Palmer method. Our teacher for the fifth grade. The name might as well have been graven in stone. As she called the roll, her voice was as gentle as the expression in her beautiful dark brown eyes. She reminded me of pansies. When she called on Alvin Ahrens to recite, and he said, I know, but I can't say. The class snickered, but she said, try, encouragingly, and waited to be sure that he didn't know the answer, and then said, to one of the hands waving in the air, tell Alvin what one-fifth of three-eighths is. If we arrived late to school, red-faced and out of breath and bursting with the excuse we had thought upon the way, before we could speak, she said, I'm sure you couldn't help it. Close the door, please, and take your seat. If she kept us after school, it was not to scold us, but to help us pass the hard part. Somebody left a big red apple on her desk for her to find when she came into the classroom, and she smiled and put it in her desk, out of sight. Somebody else left some purple asters, which she put in her drinking glass. After that, the presents kept coming. She was the only pretty teacher in the school. She never had to ask us to be quiet or to stop throwing erasers. We would not have dreamed of doing anything that would displease her. Somebody wormed it out of her when her birthday was. While she was out of the room, the class voted to present her with flowers from the greenhouse. Then they took another vote and Sweet Peas won. When she saw the florist box waiting on her desk, she said, Oh? Look inside, we all said. Her delicate fingers seemed to take forever to remove the ribbon. In the end, she raised the lid of the box and exclaimed, Read the card, we shouted. Many happy returns to Miss Vera Brown from the fifth grade, it said. She put her nose in the flowers and said, Thank you all very, very much, and then turned our minds to the spelling lesson for the day. After school, we escorted her downtown in a body to a special matinee of D.W. Griffith's Hearts of the World. She was not allowed to buy her ticket. We paid for everything. We meant to have her for our teacher forever. We intended to pass right up through the 6th, 7th, and 8th grades and on into high school taking her with us. But that isn't what happened. One day there was a substitute teacher. We expected our real teacher to be back the next day, but she wasn't. Week after week passed, and the substitute continued to sit at Miss Brown's desk, calling on us to recite and giving out tests and handing them back with grades on them. And we went on acting the way we had when Miss Brown was there because we didn't want her to come back and find we hadn't been nice to the substitute. One Monday morning, she cleared her throat and said that Miss Brown was sick and not coming back for the rest of the term. In the fall, we had passed on into the sixth grade, and she was still not back. Benny Irish's mother found out that she was living with an aunt and uncle on a farm a mile or so beyond the edge of town, and told my mother, who told somebody in my hearing. One afternoon after school, Benny and I got on our bikes and rode out to see her. At the place where the road turned off to go to the cemetery and the Chautauqua grounds, there was a red barn with a huge circus poster on it, showing the entire inside of the Sales Floto circus tent and everything that was going on in all three rings.
in the summertime, riding in the back seat of my father's open chalmers. I used to crane my neck as we passed that turn, hoping to see every last tiger and flying trapeze artist, but it was never possible. The poster was weather-beaten now, with loose strips of paper hanging down. It was getting dark when we wheeled our bikes up the lane of the farmhouse where Miss Brown lived. You knock, Benny said as we started up on the porch. No, you do it, I said. We hadn't thought ahead to what it would be like to see her. We wouldn't have been surprised if she had come to the door herself and thrown up her hands in astonishment when she saw who it was. But instead, a much older woman opened the door and said, What do you want? We came to see Miss Brown, I said. We're in her class at school, Benny explained. I could see that the woman was trying to decide whether she should tell us to go away, but she said, I'll find out if she wants to see you, and left us standing on the porch for what seemed like a long time. Then she appeared again and said, You can come in now. As we followed her through the front parlor, I could make out in the dim light that there was an old-fashioned organ like the kind you used to see in country churches, and linoleum on the floor, and stiff, uncomfortable chairs, and family portraits behind curved glass in big oval frames. The room beyond it was lighted by a coal-oil lamp, but seemed ever so much darker than the unlighted room we had just passed through. Propped up on pillows in a big double bed was our teacher, but so changed. Her arms were like sticks, and all the life in her seemed concentrated in her eyes, which had dark circles around them and were enormous. She managed a flicker of recognition, but I was struck dumb by the fact that she didn't seem glad to see us. She didn't belong to us anymore. She belonged to her illness. Benny said, I hope you get well soon. The angel who watches over little boys who know but they can't say it saw to it that we didn't touch anything. And in a minute, we were outside, on our bicycles, riding through the dusk toward the turn in the road in town. A few weeks later, I read in the Lincoln Evening Courier that Miss Vera Brown, who taught the fifth grade in Central School, had died of tuberculosis, aged 23 years and seven months. Sometimes I went with my mother when she put flowers on the graves of my grandparents. The cinder roads wound through the cemetery in ways she understood and I didn't, and I would read the names on the monuments, Brower, Cadwallader, Andrews, Bates, Mitchell, in loving memory of, infant daughter of, beloved wife of. The cemetery was so large, and so many people were buried there, it would have taken a long time to locate a particular grave if you didn't know where it was already. But I know, the way I sometimes know what is in wrapped packages, that the elderly woman who let us in and who took care of Miss Brown during her last illness went to the cemetery regularly and poured the rancid water out of the tin receptacle that was sunk below the level of the grass at the foot of her grave and filled it with fresh water from a nearby faucet and arranged the flowers she had brought in such a way as to please the eye of the living and the closed eyes of the dead. That was Tony Early, reading Love by William Maxwell. The story appeared in The New Yorker in 1983 and can be found in the Library of America's William Maxwell, Later Novels and Stories. 
Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. The questions around retirement have gotten tiring. Instead of, have you saved up enough? Shouldn't they be asking, what is it that you love to do? And how can we help you keep doing it? The truth is, you're not slowing down. So your retirement plan should be more of an action plan, a hiking plan, a music plan, a sailing plan. The point is, whatever you're passionate about, we can help make sure you never stop. At Lincoln Financial, we have the products to help protect and grow your financial future so you can keep doing more of what you love. Make your pastimes last a lifetime at lincolnfinancial.com slash action plan. Lincoln Financial Group, marketing name for Lincoln National Corporation and its insurance companies and broker slash dealer affiliate Lincoln Financial Distributors, Inc. Copyright 2024, Lincoln National Corporation. Tony, this seems like a very simple story on the surface. A beloved fifth grade teacher dies of tuberculosis and her students mourn her loss. Is there more to it than that? You know, I think that the fifth grade teacher sort of stands in for all of us. You know, this is the ultimate destination for everybody. And I think Maxwell arrives at that that larger conclusion with the description of the graveyard at the end of the story. He said the cemetery was so large and so many people were buried there, it would have taken a long time to locate a particular grave if you didn't know where it was already. I mean, it's just, it's a city of the dead. I hate to always read autobiography into into everything, but Maxwell wrote a lot about the death of his mother, which happened uh, when he was 10 years old. She died in the 1918 Spanish flu epidemic, and I think he was in fifth grade and was sort of a formative event of his career in in fiction. Do you think we should read the story differently knowing that information? You know, as a writer, I'm always a little annoyed when people attempt to interpret my fiction autobiographically, mm-hmm. but I don't mind doing it about other writers. <laughs> and this story based on the D.W. Griffith movie was set in 1918, mm-hmm. and he visits the cemetery with his mother. So that certainly does seem intentional. Yeah. Even though, imagine, as he wrote it, he probably thought, I'm the only person who knows this or or would think about this. Yeah. But going to the cemetery with his mother, that that certainly does seem a a pretty overt gesture. Well, one thing that's interesting to me about this story is is it's titled Love, and it involves what's very likely this, this boy's first experience of loving a woman other than his mother in this adoring way. What do you think of it just as a portrait of love, which is how the title challenges us to take it? Well, I think the title actually, it obviously turns out to be ironic, but ultimately sort of turns out to be cruel. It's called love, and 
And we begin by reading about this wonderful teacher that everyone idolizes, and he sort of leads us to think that we're reading one kind of a story. And then it turns out we're reading an entirely different kind of a story. It's about love, but it's also the, the tragic end of love. And so it's sort of a sneakily cruel title, I think. Now, if he'd called it death, would you, would you read the story differently? Well, I wouldn't have read it at all. <laughs> <laughs> death by William Maxwell. That sounds like a good time. There's something, you know, funny about, for me, about the description of the love in the story, because these children and, and our narrator just adore this teacher. And it's, it's a kind of puppy love, and it's a kind of, you know, hero worship. There's also something completely self-delusional about it, and, and that seems a, a remarkably adult element of love. You know, these children, they've convinced themselves that this teacher's just going to go on with them year after year, <laughs> follow them through sixth and seventh and eighth, and they're never going to lose her. In my experience, that's certainly what love feels like. I think that's a necessary component of love. I'm not sure that we would attempt it if we had any idea that it was going to end as quickly as it usually does. <laughs> and the story really spoke to me in that it made me think about my eighth grade teacher, Susan Lane, who I loved desperately. You hear that, Mrs. Lane? I'm talking about you. <laughs> I hope she's still alive. And actually, she's still gorgeous. <laughs> but I used to just gaze at her filled with not only love, but the sense of tragedy that, you know, our love could never be, that she was older and, and had a husband. And, you know, those were real stumbling blocks. <laughs> <laughs> what do you make of that moment when the, the boys go to visit the, the teacher, Miss Brown, and she has only a bare glimmer of recognition in her eyes? What's happening there? What happens to them? I think that's the moment when they, they come to understand for the first time the impermanence of love, or you might even say the tragic impermanence of love. She didn't belong to us anymore. She belonged to her illness. You know, she's gone, and she's taken that, that love with her. You mentioned before the story the way that, that Maxwell plants something at the beginning that you kind of gloss over, and then it suddenly becomes meaningful later. I noticed that the strange symmetry in this story between the beginning where he starts with the teacher writing her name on the blackboard as if it might as well have been graven in stone, and he ends with someone, you know, tending to her gravestone. Yeah, that first sentence, the, the graven in stone part, I think I'm, I mean, how presumptuous is this rewriting William Maxwell, but I might have paused at that and, and thought that was a little too much. <laughs> but, you know, the symmetry of the story, the way that things are cast one way in the beginning— but they're cast completely differently at at the end of the story. But I mentioned American template. That's the kind of thing that I'm that I'm meaning. I mean, that's just the classic American form. You know, um, Alice Monroe used to make a habit of of driving around and going to the hometowns of writers that she loved, and sort of assessing the hometown and and the writer's portrait of it. And she she once said that Maxwell's portrait of Lincoln, Illinois, was was the most spot on and the most accurate of, of any that she knew. You get a sense that this, this particular landscape, this particular town, has com completely inhabited him. But also, you know, he lived for most of his life in New York City. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, when a, a writer writes mostly about the place in which he no longer lives, it becomes a landscape of the imagination as much as it becomes a real place. Mm -hmm. If anything, it becomes even even more vivid 
you know, in the mind's eye than it than it does in person. Yeah. And, you know, maybe he wrote better about Lincoln because he didn't live there anymore and he was writing only about the what he remembered. Right. At the same time that makes it that makes it something of a of a self portrait, a portrait of childhood. I do think the landscape of the of the imagination becomes more vivid than than the real landscape. It's even kind of a of a mythical place. And I think it sort of can assume a a glow of myth that something that was strictly realistic written while the writer was there, you know, might not have the that same glow. And also that I find the narrative voice here quite interesting. I I know that for your novel, Jim the Boy, you worked very hard to find a language that was credible and not too sophisticated for a young narrator and yet still interesting on a on a literary level. Do you think that Maxwell succeeds at doing that here? Do you have a sense of the, the older man's voice in the narrative, or do you feel that it's told from this, this 10-year-old perspective? It's the older man's voice, but with a really great eye toward the younger kid's perspective. But I don't think that the voice ever loses the, the elegiac tone. And one of the things that isn't said here, and this is partly established through the use of the period details, is that this is the voice of an old man who himself is approaching that, that cemetery. You know, the story was written in, in the early 80s. We know the movie came out in 1918. The kid would have been around 10 years old. He's roughly William Maxwell's age. And so the narrator of the story would have to be in, in his 70s and would be thinking about these things. Mm-hmm. The narrator never comes out and said, oh, I'm thinking about my own death. But I think that the narrator's own death is sort of the, the cloud that's, that's hanging over the story. And again... It ends in the cemetery. As do all things. Yeah, I think I've always thought death and dying was kind of a design flaw. And I'm thinking of writing a letter to somebody. When you get that address, will you uh, share it with me? I want to be recalled and fixed. (laughs) Thank you so much, Tony. Thank you, Deborah. Tony Early is the author of two collections of short stories, as well as two novels, Jim the Boy and the Blue Star. His most recent story for the magazine, Jack and the Mad Dog, appeared in the October 1st, 2012 issue. Subscribers can read it online at newyorker.com and also hear him read it in the tablet edition of that issue. You can subscribe to this podcast as well as to the New Yorker Out Loud and the Political Scene podcast in the iTunes store. You can also download the weekly audio edition of The New Yorker through iTunes or audible.com or join the conversation on our Facebook page. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by newyorker.com and Curtis Fox Productions. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.